WDBM East Lansing. 89 FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Good evening. Thank you for taking time out of your day to be with us on Exposure. It is September 17th, and I'm Abby Newton. Today on Exposure, we will speak with Michigan State professors about unmanned drones and the significance of bilingual education. We also get a sneak peek at Blues Fest in Lansing this weekend. We will also explore the East Lansing proposal to limit the number of people at bars past midnight. Lastly, we will preview a new band called MS-80. Now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome again to Impact Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. Michigan State University professor Scott Inberman co-authored a study that found students who were enrolled in bilingual education performed better on state math and reading tests than students at schools without bilingual education. I welcome Scott Inberman himself to talk about the study. Well, welcome to Exposure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, this is the first research of its kind that studies the actual spillover effect of bilingual education. Could you go into more detail about what you found exactly? So what we found is, uh, so we studied schools in Texas, and uh, Texas, as uh, you may know, um, has a lot of students with limited English proficiency, you know, meaning that they have, um, they're not fluent in uh, the English language, uh, at least initially when they enter school. Mm-hmm. We started out with the intention of, both looking at the impacts on uh, the students who are uh, limited English proficient, so those who need um, particular uh, language uh, assistance programs, as well as looking at the impacts on other students, because we theorize that you know, a lot of focus on this uh, of these and other this education program, you know, bilingual education versus uh, English as a second language, and a lot of other education programs focus on the students who they are directly target to, which, you know, is, is natural. But also there is always a possibility that there are uh, other effects, indirect effects, that people don't really think about too much. Mm-hmm. And so what we found uh, surprised us. Um, we found that there, that for school districts that uh, implement a bilingual education program, the students who are not enrolled in the program actually see improvements in their achievement test scores. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also found you know, we also found that there may be improvements for the students who do enroll, but uh, but we just didn't have enough data to really tell whether uh, whether statistically that's true. For people who don't aren't familiar with the difference between the English as a second language right. and bilingual education, could you just explain that briefly? Sure. When a student enters a, a public school in the U.S. and they um, they come from a home that speaks a foreign language, it doesn't speak English. Typically, they are placed into one of two programs. There are other programs around, but they're a lot smaller. Um, the first is English as a second language. This in ES in, or ESL. In ESL, the students are put into a regular mainstream classroom, and are usually g- given additional assistance with the work and help uh, in their home language as well as classes to teach them English. Mm-hmm. They're pulled out of the regular classroom for that. Mm-hmm. For bilingual education, typically these students are placed into a separate classroom where they're taught in their home language with additional instruction in English to help them. Uh, gain fluency in English. So it's really a matter of, you know, are you grouped with uh, all, uh, mo- pretty much exclusively other students with limited English proficiency, or are you, uh, or are you uh, placed into a regular classroom with extra support? And in terms of research, why do you think that this is the case, that people who weren't actually enrolled in bilingual education found this benefit? Some of it has to do with a phenomenon we call peer effects, that um, they're, you know, the, you have these students in the classroom. They require uh, more work from the teacher uh, often, um, and they may require more assistance. And so, you know, there's kind of like a limited amount of time that can be spent uh, helping students in the classroom. And so, we we theorize that these uh, these students uh, that these students uh, basically take up additional time that would otherwise go to other students. And so. You know, uh, having them in their own classroom actually ends up helping 
those other students uh, improve. Why do you think these findings are significant, and how do you hope that they are almost uh, looked upon to maybe change the system or enhance the system in education when it comes to bilingual education? There's a lot of debate about whether it's better to use bilingual education or other uh, systems. Uh, you know, a lot, most of the debate kind of focuses on English immersion type co courses, although those are actually pretty rare in practice. Um, and so most students, um, you have this distinction between bilingual education and English as a second language. And bilingual education is actually uh, somewhat more expensive than English as a second language. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's very controversial about to what extent we should be using uh, these programs. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, my hope is that our research kind of paints that, puts, puts out that there is a larger picture here, that there are um, you know, in, in, in general, not just for this program, but for any education program, that there are potentially effects on other students and that when you're evaluating uh, an education program, you have to take into account all of the, all the, the overall impacts on all students, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, not, you know and not just focus on the students who are um, directly affected by the program. And what intrigued you to do this research? In general, I just am interested in education policy and I want to try to figure out which policies work better and which, uh, and which don't. And also, I think because there's some nice economic theory behind uh, what we're looking at and what we're finding, you know, the idea, of the, and the idea that students um, are affected by the, the other students in their classroom in various ways has a, has a long history in, in uh, economics of education research. Mm -hmm. Has bilingual education and studies based on English as a second language become pretty prominent in the research realm of economics and education? It's an extremely important issue for those reasons that mm -hmm. we, you know, we have more and more uh, students coming into the school system who speak foreign languages, and so it's important that we, uh, that, we know, that we figure out how to instruct them in the best way possible you know, for the lowest cost possible. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, there is some research out there in, uh, you know, on these programs. There's very little, though, on what I would call that, that can really establish uh, what we call a causal uh, link, uh, a, a causal analysis that you say, you know, does this particular program actually cause uh, achievement to go up or go down? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, often the, pro the papers on the, the studies on these this program in particular, and a lot of other programs, they kind of look for a link, and they look for kind of, uh, you know, basically saying, you know, they're, well, bilingual education students, uh, you know, on average uh, perform better or worse, but we don't know whether there's other factors at play there. So our study, what we really focused on is trying to get, figure out some way where we could say, yes, this bilingual education actually causes these test scores to go up. Mm. Okay. And we're pretty confident we established that. Mm -hmm. And do you hope to continue furthering on this research? Are you looking into other realms in the bilingual education sphere, I suppose? Um, well, I'm kind of looking, I look more generally at the education stuff, so I don't have anything on, the, on my plate right now on bilingual education, but, but I do look in uh, lots of other mm -hmm. issues in uh, education policy. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time, Professor Scott Imberman. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate your findings. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now, back to Impact Exposure.
Farmers will now have the technology to see an aerial view of their fields and maximize yields. Michigan State University professor Bruno Basso contributed to the research that enabled this institution to land its first unmanned drone. To talk about the exciting product, we have Bruno Basso in the studio. Newton, Impact Exposure, 89FM. So Michigan State has its first unmanned drone, thanks to you. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, it's used to maximize yields for farmers. Can you explain how it does that? Well, uh, the drone is really, uh, like you said, it's an unmanned uh, vehicle, uh, remotely controlled, um, extremely powerful because uh, it's mounted with sensors, and um, these sensors um, have different capabilities and they monitor basically uh, the behavior, the well-being of the crops in a field. So some crops, uh, some plants in one area of the field behave differently, just like a community, you know, could behave differently than another part of uh, the field, uh, thus demanding different inputs. So the drone allows you to assess the spatial variability, uh, basically how much uh, nitrogen the plant have used, and possibly what is the right amount to be input in order to maximize the yield in a way different from this area compared to another part of the field. Oh. And are these popular? Oh, not a, drones? <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. Where yeah. did your idea for it start? I, um, I have always worked in um, trying to uh, monitor plants from an eye in the sky. Uh, so I used uh, remote sensing technologies, uh, which in the past has always been available through satellite. But the scale of uh, the resolution, let's say, of what I'm interested in, which is agricultural fields, remote sensing has a lot of disadvantages uh, or limitations, let's say, that the scale of the images, you know, are too coarse. Uh, sometimes, you know, few few pixels we cover an entire field. With the drone, you can learn basically what happens at a centimeter scale. Wow. You can distinguish uh, plants and um, basically, you know, the behavior of uh, a very, very fine scale in the field. So because I've used that now, I always had basically this dream that I wish I could go at a f finer scale and uh, assess how these plants behave over space. And this information and then uh, incorporated into a crop model, a decision support system that looks uh, what happens over time. So it's a combination. That's the unique feature of these research is obviously the drone, but it's a combination of uh, the drone assessing what happens in different parts of the field and then the model determining what happens tomorrow or you know by the end of the season if you do one strategy versus another. If you put more nitrogen or less nitrogen before you even put it. So basically helps farmer reduce their risk associated with the decision that they make. Mm -hmm. And is our plants um, very different in a plot of land? I mean, how diverse can they get in their needs? They, they can be extremely diverse, not, not in terms of genetic materials. Mm -hmm. You know, they're pretty much uniform from their point of view. But the conditions that they are exposed can be different. They can be exposed to different soil type. One area of the field can be clay and another part of the field can be sand. So the current management treats one size fits all, you know, and it's not necessarily the case. So this technology allows us to, you know, pinpoint uh, uh, very precisely where that type of soil is. And because of that, soil plants behave differently. Um, on top of soil differences could be position in the landscape. You know, you, you can have an area of the field which is on a sloping land and you know where water runs off and so if water runs off the amount of nitrogen that is needed is different than the one at the you know at the valley bottom and mm -hmm. so this technology again allows to get basically an x-ray of, uh, of the field and the plants uh, performance. And what have farmers' response been when you present them with this very unique technological yeah. idea? Yeah, uh, again, it's rather new. So uh, most of the farmers have uh, probably heard, you know, bits and pieces of news and so on. Um, we have just recently got a new uh, project uh, funded by the National Science Foundation. 
and we will be looking at uh, 75 fields in the states of Michigan, uh, in uh, Illinois, and Iowa. I have uh, a PhD student, uh, that, uh, his name is Ryan uh, Nagelkirk. He's basically in charge of you know monitoring plants uh, in this uh, farmer's field. So the reaction is, uh, I, I mean, for the few that I know personally has been amazed, you know, they're basically amazed by this technology. But um, they always would like to see, uh, you know, in action and see the results, which is uh, not a straightforward procedure. I mean, requires quite a bit of elaboration and data analysis that, you know, the team, uh, my research group, will will carry on. And if you were to take the drone and use it on a uh, plot of land, it would, and then you used it again, say the next year, do you, would it tra change drastically that X-ray? Or would you find that be kind of similar? Yes, no, that's a very good question. Basically, um, the advantage, again, of having a drone, which is easy to use, I mean, you just go to the field, you pre-plan the flight, and off it goes, uh, you can go back to the same, exact same location and see the, that same group of plants if they're exposing, you know, the same situation. And most of the time it's never the same because, you know, that response is driven by climate. And so... Uh, it's seldom you will get the same, you know, distribution of rainfall or temperature. Mm -hmm. So um, the behavior is rather different. But the model, uh, the crop model, Salus, will help basically assess variation over time and how climate, soil and management interact. And can you talk more about SALIS or the system approach for land use sustainability model? Yes. Because that's a big component. Of yes, it is a big component. It's, uh, it's a model that was developed here at Michigan State uh, initially by uh, a professor that actually I've studied with. His name is Joe Ritchie. And um, so together we carry on this project for the last few years. Um, we have uh, both had the same uh, programmer, Brian Baer, uh, who looks after all the coding. Uh, the... The model is, again, very powerful, has been tested in many places in the world, it has the ability of uh, simulate the impact of climate, soil, and management, so basically what a farmer does, on the yield and the environmental impact. So basically how much you, you could produce and what is your environmental impact, how much nitrate leaching is going to go to the groundwater or how much uh, nitrous oxide, uh, greenhouse gas emissions have been emitted from the soil. And how will this both in um, partnership with the, it, how do, what is it, the seals? Uh, Sal Salus, you mean? How, Salus, okay, I didn't know how to say it. I was like, because uh -huh. I know the whole term. Ter right, yeah, yeah. Salus, Salus yes, <laughs> which means health for the, the well-being of right. the land. Okay, um, so I'll rephrase that question. So how would the Salus in the drone improve the efficiency of farming in the future? Yes, uh, again, good coupling of questions <laughs> because the drone uh, looks at variation in the space, which means in a field, you know, how different plants behave. Salus um, accounts for what is the best management strategy on these two different, three different zones, depending on how many, you know, the drone is able to, to pick it up, basically as a response of uh, the plants uh, exposed to variability. Mm -hmm. So with the model, uh, you can really run a series of scenarios under current climate or future climate change to see what is the best a management strategy that a farmer can adopt and adapt to climate change as well as trying to mitigate you know reduce the greenhouse mm -hmm. gas emissions so it's it's um, basically a win-win situation we say in in the areas of a field where um, let's say that part of the field is not being gifted uh, for production farmers can make a higher profitability by spending less and now they still do uniform applications, which basically they overestimate the, the input in one area and possibly underestimate in another area. So it's, uh, so you know, in one of the interview in, in this uh, last few days, uh, I used, you know, if you really cut yourself, you don't dive into, you know, disinfectant. You just treat it locally where it's necessary. So technology now is at that level of details. Uh, so... Technology is very advanced, but the biophysical component is very complex. You know, plants are living organisms, behave differently according to the different conditions. And so the model, it's really crucial. The drone by itself, it may not necessarily be sufficient to tell you what to do. 
it will tell you that different things are happening in different places and what kind of stress uh, has caused uh, you know the plant to behave if it's nitrogen or water but in order to decide what is the best management strategy you will need to run the model under different uh, climate and uh, interaction of soil and management. So it's a compliment. It's very nice. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's, again, the unique feature. It's not just the drone. Uh, it's a combination of the drone linked to crop modeling. So you've got the brains behind the muscle. Looks yeah, good. <laughs> that, that sounds good. <laughs> and uh, this is fairly new. You know, you've been at Michigan State for a year as a professor. Yes. And you've already had this under your belt. But what are your long-term goals with it? Yeah, that's a very nice question because um, everything sounds so, um, you know, intriguing and uh, exciting, which it is. Um, but I have an ambitious goal that um, all this research that I'm doing uh, needs to be applied on a very large scale. So I really want farmers to adopt the technology that I'm uh, developing. And uh, so I have this vision that whether it's through Michigan State University, either extension service or a spin-off from the university, that this information can be delivered to the farmers as a service and not just, you know, a research where you will get, you know, an advanced publication. And the science in agriculture needs to be applied. Uh, there is a, a, a crucial aspect of basic science, but when, when it comes to helping farmers making decisions, can't get more applied than that. So um, that's the long-term plan is to basically have a fleet of drones uh, linked into a web-based uh, uh, crop modeling that farmers can log in mm -hmm. uh, to their uh, specific you know, web page that they will be assigned and learn uh, what, what is the probability of uh, the outcome if they use, you know, 100 kilograms of nitrogen versus 200 kilograms of nitrogen seeding in the room before they go to the field. Well, we appreciate you coming all the way from Rome to the Midwest. That's right. No, well, actually, I just came from natural science. You know? <laughs> That's right. My bad. <laughs> no, but uh, I understand. Yes, yes, it's just the year has been nice. Uh, uh, it's, I just feel great to be back at MSU in this position and... Uh, just fantastic. Well, you should. <laughs> uh, Bruno Basso, anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, it's just been a pleasure to be here tonight. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. here Th thanks again man it was good wait time. you were uh you were hitting it pretty hard tonight are you, are you good to drive heck yeah i am amazing at driving yeah man you sure i mean i can call a cab or we fine. can uh, we can get somebody to take you home yeah, you know yeah, don't worry i'm good okay uh hey text me when you get back okay stop right there this is stupid he's drunk friends don't let friends drink and drive ever a message from 88.9 impact for more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Prime where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights from 8 until 10 p.m., the Impact Flashback is your retro music alternative, playing your old favorites from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Only on Impact Primetime. In a world where radio was repetitive and mundane, in a time when FM is plagued by the same 15 songs, an army of new songs are called to battle. And only the strongest survive. Every Sunday night from 8 till 10. Sit or spin. Only on Impact 89 FM. Now back to Impact Exposure. Thank you for staying with us here on Exposure. I'm Abby Newton. The East Lansing Planning Commission is in the midst of discussing the possibility of reducing the number of people served alcohol in downtown East Lansing past midnight. The recommendation is to reduce the number of seats by 600 from 3,892 to 3,300. I spoke with East Lansing's Planning and Community Development Director, Tim Dempsey, earlier today about the proposal. So first off, what does this proposal mean for the downtown East Lansing area? Well, what it includes is a change to 
uh, restrict any additional restaurants that would serve alcohol past midnight. That's a primary change. There's a, also some modifications to what we call our 50-50 reporting uh, in terms of restaurants reporting their sales of alcohol to food ratio. So uh, to make it actually a little bit easier for restaurants. But the big one is that after midnight. And why is it being brought up? It's brought up because since 2007, we've added about 650 seats in the downtown with new restaurants. That's been a 20% increase in the number of seats in our downtown. So it's been quite a bit when you look at the overall numbers. We actually have 42, over 4,200 seats of total restaurant space um, that provide alcohol service. So our public safety, uh, both police and fire, you know, had some concerns about the large numbers of people that spill out into the streets at 2 a.m. and some of the issues that they cause. So that's become a concern for us that we're trying to deal with. And would this proposal limit the new businesses that have come about in downtown, so like Hopcat and those businesses, or just restrict those in the future? Yeah, this is simply restriction to those in the future. This would not at all impact existing businesses. Uh, so that's a important point because we're not here obviously to impact those businesses. We don't want to have a detrimental uh, influence on their business. We want to have a positive influence. We want them to succeed. But what this does is restrict new businesses, again, that would be open past midnight. So if a restaurant came in, let's take like something we might be familiar with at Eastwood, like a Champs or a um, Rio Bravo, any of those restaurants, typically closed by midnight, they could still come down here and open. So we're not restricting additional, we're just restricting the ones that would serve between 12 and, and 2 a.m. And have the authorities been overwhelmed by the 20% increase or is it just kind of a future thought? Yeah, I don't think they've been overwhelmed. I think they've been able to manage it um, largely because they are used to it and they know how to deal with the issues. But there are concerns about you know, the future growth. If we continue to add that, are we going to get to the point where it becomes unmanageable? And obviously the city has had our challenges fiscally where we're trying to, you know, be very efficient with when we use our police force. And it, it's difficult to man, you know, staff and man those hours later at night. So we want to have a balance there. Again, be fiscally responsible, but also make sure the downtown safe. And how do you think this will impact future downtown business? From our standpoint, I don't think it'll have a negative impact. I think one of the areas we're trying to reach out to to diversify downtown is have a greater variety of restaurants, uh, places. You know, you mentioned some of the ones at Eastwood, but if you look at maybe the nicer sit-down restaurants that a lot of people are familiar with, either from Ann Arbor or Grand Rapids, this would not restrict any of those from opening. Uh, they'd be able to come in here, be successful. Uh, would they be able to be open past midnight? No, but at that point you're really not serving kind of nicer meals you're really just serving alcohol to you know primarily a, a younger crowd which again there's nothing wrong with that we think we have plenty of venues uh, for that and have other college towns done anything similar with the proposals yeah you know, we've looked at some other college towns and i think what what we've seen is that a lot of college towns have a better mix of restaurants uh, they don't tend to have just the ones that are maybe more oriented towards, you know, the the student crowd where it's more of a, a mix of different demographics. And I think a lot of those, because of that, have not had necessarily had the need to do that. Um, but w what we've also seen in other, other communities is that the state is much more involved in the regulation and restriction. It's a lot harder sometimes to get uh, licenses. That's one of the things about East Lansing is a little unique. Um, we're actually unique to Michigan is that we have these redevelopment liquor licenses. So there's quite a few licenses that are available. And if you look at all of our recent new businesses, uh, all of them, with the exception of Pepino's, have come from these redevelopment licenses. So um, we're dealing with something that a lot of other you know, states and college towns don't necessarily have to deal with. Okay. And how likely do you think the proposal will get passed and this will be get, get implemented? Excuse me. Well, you know, certainly that's a, a question that staff is often hesitant to answer because it's not our decision. It's our city council, their elected body. Um, we've certainly seen interest in, in changing some of the regulations that we've proposed. So it, it may very well get um, supported by council, but it's ultimately up to them to make that decision. And then going back to the 50-50 the food to alcohol ratio as well and the changes with that. Could you explain in what direction you're thinking of going in that realm? 
Yeah, we're looking at a couple things. One is we want to make it easier for those restaurants that have a very high proportion of food sales. So if I'm a restaurant owner and I do over 80% of my sales in food, we're not going to require you to report um, unless we see that there's an issue. So you have to have a demonstrated track record for a few years, but we want to be able to make it easier on those uh, establishments. And then establishments that also have a demonstrated track record of not having any problems or liquor law violations, what we want to do with them is ease the burden where they could go up to 60% alcohol and 40% food. Uh, they would have to be smaller establishments, so 150 seats or less. But what we're trying to do there is capitalize on like the craft beer trend uh, where you have maybe higher alcohol prices, but you might still have food prices that are at a lower um, you know, price point. So the ratio gets a little bit out of whack, but those aren't necessarily venues that are creating problems because they're smaller, they, again, appeal to a broader audience. So we're trying to, again, be a little bit um, flexible here with what we've done on the enforcement side. Because, um, again, a lot of people say, well, you know, you're going to shut off business after midnight. No, we're not. We're going to keep that in place, and we're also going to implement some things to make it easier for existing businesses. So we're trying to, we're trying to balance mm -hmm. that. Obviously, you know, the, the whole alcohol service industry is highly regulated by the state and local ordinances. And we'll always continue to be, but what we're trying to do are put in regulations that balance that out, that balance the safety of our, you know, the patrons downtown, of our residents, with the needs to make sure that businesses can be successful. And do you have anything else you'd like to add? I think that's all the questions I have. No, just that I, I think what we're trying to do here is, you know, a step forward uh, in terms of our thinking about alcohol in the downtown. But also, the changes that we put in place today don't have to necessarily be permanent. If we find out in, in a year or two years that maybe this isn't working or that an aspect of it needs to change, we'll change it. And if you look at the history of East Lansing, these regulations that you know, control alcohol establishments have evolved over time. There have been updates and amendments to laws and ordinances on a continual basis. So what we're doing today isn't cast in stone permanently. It's certainly something that we can go back and change if the need is there. And I think it was interesting because I feel like a lot of residents, they hear bars close at midnight. You know, that's maybe what they only get from this whole proposal discussion. So I think when you really dissect it, you get a whole different feel. Absolutely. And that's a very important point that we're trying to stress is this does not make Hopcat or the Riv or Rick's or any of the places that people are used to going to, they can all stay open till 2 o'clock. This does not impact, impact that whatsoever. It's only for new establishments you know, coming in. And when you look again at the number of seats in the downtown, like I said, 4,200, about 3,900 of those do stay open till 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of opportunity for those that want to be out later in our downtown. Great. Well, thank you very much, Tim Dempsey. I appreciate it. Sure. Glad to be here.
been there, I've been uptown, downtown, everywhere I've been to New York. Said I'm going to New York. Well, I'm going to New York. Go what if I had to walk. Now, Jimmy, we do like this. Welcome back. I'm Abby Newton, and you are listening to Impact Exposure. This weekend, Old Town Lansing will be vibrant and happening as the city celebrates the ninth annual Blues Fest. Coordinator of the festival, Ty Liggins, and a band that will perform at the Blues Fest are here to talk about the weekend ahead. Now, Blues Fest could arguably be one of the most anticipated festivals in Lansing. Could you tell us a little bit about it and why it's so anticipated? Well, it's been around for about 19 years now. This is the 19th year. started in 1994. And it's a great, great event that happens every year along. It's basically precedes the Jazz Fest and the Mosaic Festival. So it's one of a trio of festivals that Mike uh, puts on. Mm-hmm. So Michigan uh, Institute for uh, Contemporary Art, excuse me, wow. Yep. Now, what is the experience that one would have at Blues Fest? Uh, well, you're going to experience probably 10 to 15 artists from across Michigan and the Midwest. So... We've got artists from Michigan, we got artists from Chicago, we got, we've had artists from Indiana, just all over the place, Midwest, so it's, it's a lot of great bands and a lot of great experience. And one is Frog and Dave, these we guys are. sitting to my left. <laughs> we're, we're, at, uh, we're at 6 o'clock on the Micah stage okay. on uh, Friday night. Saturday night. Or Saturday night. Saturday. Never Saturday. Mind. He'll be there, be there Friday, he's Saturday. ready. <laughs> but one of, the things, one of the things about the Blues Festival is I've, I've played at the Blues Festival before, and so is Frog. Yep. In, in one thing or another, and they run it so well. It's mm-hmm. just done so well. They have they have two large stages on, it's Turner Street, right? Yeah. And they have two large stages on Turner Street and then a smaller stage in the parking lot across by the park. And when one band's playing at one end of Turner Street, another band's getting ready at the other end. That's and when one band stops, another band stops. Bang, bang, bang. People just kind of shift from... It's one like a end pendulum, of the huh? To the other, and it's really cool. Well, it's there's nice a, they keep things going. There's a beer mm-hmm. tent in between, and there, and there's, and then there's the businesses along this, along the road there, where you can get all kinds of things. It's really nice. It's, it's open to the public. Indeed, it is. <laughs> there you go. Um, now, what do you? Everybody's vote? welcome. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a great experience, especially with the uh, kids' beats. Uh, families come out and they do. Um, working with kids, so from like one to seven, kids can come and work with different artists and stuff like that, and you know learn how to do different musical instruments and try out their musical skills. So mm-hmm. you know that's a great experience for the whole family. And again, it is an old town, which is a really unique little area. Could you describe the uniqueness of this little city? Well, it's old town's kind of like that small city within a city, mm-hmm. and it's, it's it's like a lot of art and a lot of. Um, Art, basically. Culture, I mean, really. maybe culture, diversity. Yeah. Culture and diversity over there. So they're really building up Old Town to be mm-hmm. this, like, artsy, culturally area. And it's pretty cool. And then you have the festivals, you know, towards the middle and end of the year. And it's just, it makes it a great experience. And Matchet and Frog, the band over here, or Dave and Frog, here how would you, how would you describe your music? Well, it's Comedic? No. <laughs> Comedic? No. It's, it's basically, it's basically stripped down blues. Stripped. It's it's um, both Frog and I play in larger groups too, with a lot of electricity going on. Mm-hmm. It can be very loud, and they're a lot of fun. And but 
we thought, wouldn't it be kind of fun just to take all that out of there and go to the essential. Blues songs were originally written on a, either a guitar or a piano. They weren't like written with a whole band. They didn't come into the whole band and said, here's the song, mm -hmm. and we're going to write it together. Some guy wrote a song on his guitar or on the piano. And so it's more like that. It's more like we, we wanted to explore that song. Mm -hmm. we're, we're finding it to be kind of fun. So. We put our Leonard Nimoy's ears on, and now we're in search of. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, they're going to be playing for us very shortly. Uh, but before that, could you just give last details on where the event is, when it is, and how people can gain access to ticket information? Yeah, um, people can. There's no tickets, so. Excellent. You know, like I said, it's open to the public. People just show up and, and just hang out. And, you know, there is an entry fee for the beer tent, which, you know, once people get there, they can find that out. Um and it's it starts on Turner Street. It's Friday, Saturday, September twentieth and twenty first, and you know it's a great experience for all of us and the committee and all of our sponsors that have that have helped out. Simplify Tax, Noodles and Company, you know, um, West Side Beer. The list just goes on. Mm -hmm. But it's a great experience, and they definitely help us out. Well, it's certainly a community event. It sounds it like, is. and we look forward to hearing Matchet and Frog perform. Here we are. All right. Listening to Impact Exposure. 
more variety than you'll hear on any other station. Listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime. where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Friday nights at 10 p.m., get ready for The Mechanical Pulse, where we're spinning all the house, trance, drum and bass, electro, ambient, and remixed music you need to get the weekend started. You'll hear live interviews and DJs spinning straight from the Impact Studios and the best new music on the scene. So tune in every Friday night at 10 p.m. for Mechanical Pulse. Only on 88.9 The Impact. Have you ever considered donating your blood? If not, perhaps you might reconsider. By the time this announcement is through, 15 new people will need blood. In fact, blood is needed by one in every 10 hospital patients, and there is almost always a shortage. There is no substitute for human blood. It cannot be manufactured. It can only come from those willing to donate. To learn more or make an appointment, visit redcrossblood.org. Reconsider blood donation. It's about life. Now back to Impact Exposure. Now being in a band is difficult work, but when you add in schoolwork, applying for college, and school activities into the mix, it seems nearly impossible. But not for MS80, a Lansing band made up of high school students. We had the band in the studio to perform a few of their songs.
guitarist in uh, the MS-80. Um, I'm Matt Shaw. I uh, do vocals and also play guitar in the MS-80. My name is Jack McKay, and I play bass in the MS-80. My name is Henry Potter, and I play drums in the MS-80. Well, welcome to Impact. <laughs> we have MS-80. Yeah. <laughs> so first off, tell me about MS-80. Why the MS-80? What's up with that name? It was a, it was a very hot summer day. And we were trying to come up with a name for our band, and uh, us being very creative, we took our initials, which are MS and AD, oh, and kind okay. of, because um, at the time it was just Aaron, Don, and I, so. Okay. Yeah, there's there's kind of a story behind us Go as ahead. a musical yeah. group. Um, yeah, so I think the first time we actually, Matt, Matt and I played together was in, uh, I think, seventh grade. Uh, we were in a band. We've been in a few bands over the years. Um, I think three others, but they never really panned out. So I think the farthest we ever got was like uh, videos on YouTube. <laughs> so so not very far. Um, so you crashed the threshold with MS80, right? Extremely yeah. quickly, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, very nice. So how would you describe your music if you were the ones talking about it? Okay, let's go, Potter. What do you have well, to say? Well, <laughs> we're very influenced by the Strokes and the Arctic Monkeys. Yeah. The and Strokes and the Ar Arctic Monkeys? Arctic Monkeys, Can you yeah. explain those? Oh, um, <laughs> they're just alternative bands. Mm -hmm. And what are your plans for the future in regards to the band? Where are you hoping to go? What's your next step? <laughs> we're not really sure because, I mean, these guys are both seniors in high school, so they'll be leaving next year, and then I don't know what we're going to do from there. And where do you guys do your inspiration for your lyrics come from? Um, I, I used to get very bored in class my freshman and sophomore year, and instead of, I realized that I had no drawing talent, so I turned, <laughs> I turned immediately to, like, lyrics and stuff like that. So at the time, I was listening to a lot of stuff that kind of, like, poured emotion out, like, maybe, like, Dashboard Confessional and stuff like that. One of those kids, I guess. But, um, <laughs> um, that really got me influenced in writing and stuff like that, and, um, tried to copy some of the some of the lyrics I liked and making my own and uh, now it just kind of comes to me like weekly or so I'll have a yeah. revelation so being in high school how difficult is it to have a band in high school I wouldn't say it's too bad <laughs> I'd say it's probably easier yeah. than yeah definitely. we, don't, yeah. Have to, we yeah. don't have fees or taxes we don't place especially in the summer <laughs> we don't have to work well yeah. get a nice cool basement to practice in yeah, yeah. get to bed by 11 <laughs> <laughs> every night um every night i mean we had a show at the loft uh a few weeks back and uh with lights and caves i don't know if they've been in here or not but uh one of the they're all telling us that in high school it's a lot easier to uh get a big crowd for shows because you yeah. have such a big, like... We're the masters of the interwebs. Yeah, so, like, yeah. friends so, in high school. Yeah. Masters of the interwebs. No. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. That's our new band so name. So there's such okay. a big social network in high school. Mm -hmm. So it kind of almost makes it easier for us in some ways. So when they leave you in, in high school, you can be the master of the interwebs. That yeah, exactly. Me and Jack. All two-man band. Pass on the... <laughs> so what about the upcoming performances? What do you guys have on your docket? Uh, right now we have... Uh, we're, we're going to be playing with uh, Young London and Gold House at Max Bar um, September 27th. Doors open at 5.30. And both those bands are on the Vans Warp Tour right now. So we thought that was kind of cool because that's a big tour. Um, it's not a school night. Yeah, it's not a school <laughs> night. It's not a school Your night. parents are happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but as high school students, is it weird going into these performances, these bars where you have who knows how old these people, these other people are? Do you feel awkward at all? 
Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's kind of strange. A little, little uncomfortable at first, but everyone's really friendly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, we got. We've only done uh, it once. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got, we've got our, we got a really overwhelming amount of uh, positive feedback. Yeah, that was that was kind of. I mean, uh, the the reason that we were able to get the show at the loft a few weeks ago was because one of the bands that they had dropped out, and they just picked us out of like the random blue out of like all the young bands without who've never played a gig or whatever and they just picked us expecting nothing like special but we didn't hear anything like bad from them what was that experience like what was going through your head and your heart at that time your first live performance nerves <laughs> judging by my facial expressions on stage I wasn't thinking very hard <laughs> in a good way or <laughs> I don't even know I'd, I'd say in a good way I didn't mess up too much yeah well I mean it was definitely a great experience we had a lot of fun with it Okay. It's pretty solid. Yeah. <laughs> pretty solid. That's, pretty that's solid. what we have to say. Oh, well, do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? Um, go green. Go white. And you're not coming to Michigan State, are you sure? He should. <laughs> it's on my list. It's on my list. All right. Well, best of luck to you boys. We look Thank forward you. to hearing from you soon. Thank you very much. Yeah. And that is all we have this evening. 
Special thanks to our producer, Gabriela Saldivia, our station manager, Sam Riddle, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. Keeping you informed and bidding you farewell until next week. This is Abby Newton for Impact Exposure 89FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure.